from the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, where we dive deep into the art and science of teaching and learning. My guest today is Dr. Susan Bloom, professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame and the author of nine books, including her 2009 publication, My Word, Plagiarism and College Culture. Her 2016 book, I Love Learning, I Hate School, an anthropology of college. And her 2020 instant classic, Ungrading, why rating students undermines learning and what to do instead, which she both edited and contributed to alongside higher education experts from across the world. Dr. Susan Bloom, welcome to the CoLab. Thank you so much, Josh. What a great introduction. I love the way you read the titles of the books with such feeling. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. And you're a linguistic anthropologist, so you have a lot of expertise in these things. I was going to ask you about this quote I've always loved. It's this apocryphal Mark Twain quote, I have never let my schooling interfere with my education. What does that quote mean to you? It's the idea that schooling is not the only place learning happens. And I think it's really important that we keep that in mind. That's where my discipline of anthropology can make a contribution because we know all the different places and ways that people learn all the time. And schools and schooling are relatively recent in the history of our species, and they don't always work that well. So that's kind of our challenge here, right, on this podcast in this industry, how do we make learning in school settings as robust and as effective as they often are outside school? And you quoted the title of my book, I Love Learning, I Hate School, which came from a student, a highly accomplished student at a highly selective university. She volunteered this statement. She was very conscious of a mismatch between learning and school. And she loved learning, but she knew school wasn't really about learning. School was about a whole bunch of other things. Now, in your 2009 book on plagiarism and college culture, you say that if all that students are incentivized and acculturated to care about are grades, then cheating is a perfectly reasonable strategy. So tell me more about that observation. It sounds kind of shocking and scandalous, but... I think I believe it even more now than when I wrote it, because I've spent a lot of the last decade thinking about grades. And in my 2016 book, I wrote that if I could change one thing about school, it would be to get rid of grades. And then I realized maybe I kind of could. And so that's what set me off on this ungrading journey. But grades, if you think, or if a student thinks that the purpose is to get good grades, then that's the goal. That is the goal. And so however you set out to do it seems effective, efficient, rational, because that's the end. But if the end is learning, then there can be no cheating. You can't cheat learning. But if you ask many students in many settings, you know, what are you here for? They will often say, I am here to get good grades and I need them for X, Y, and Z reasons. And those are real reasons in the structure and the systems that we currently have. 
but I just cannot see my entire raison d'être being to help students get points. But in my own experience, now that I've been ungrading, I have not had any cheating because it's not possible or plausible. There's no way that could happen. After watching your keynote at a recent faculty development conference, I wrote a definition of ungrading as a process of pedagogical inquiry that calls conventional assessment practices into question and continually searches for educational practices that work better to promote meaningful engagement and lasting learning. I was wondering if you could expand upon that definition of ungrading and the constellation of ungrading practices that you feature in your book, Ungrading. Ungrading for me was kind of the central change that I had to make to make all the other pedagogical changes work. So student-centered learning, authentic outcomes, all of that wasn't really possible until I got rid of the grading part. So this constant inquiry, pedagogical inquiry is ongoing and ungrading is a part of it. So the conventional structures of grading, but also the conventional structures of direct instruction, the conventional structures of competition, the conventional structures of passivity, of uniformity, all of these other conventional structures are part of this ongoing inquiry into this process of changing all the dimensions of pedagogy to make them align better with the humanity of the actual learners we have in our classes. It's very progressive. It kind of speaks to the whole progressive education movement historically. And you have this great quote that grading is often the end of thinking. So looking back historically, what were grades designed to do and what are they actually doing? There is now in the last five years or so, there is quite a lot written about the history of grading. It probably began at Cambridge where people were taking oral examinations and they were trying to distinguish the students who had really excelled. And it wasn't that they weren't passing most of the students, but they wanted to note down or to mark which students had especially noteworthy performances. And that became more useful as more and more people went to higher education. If you go back and look at the history of participation in tertiary education, it's minuscule. In the single digits just over 100 years ago, almost nobody went to college. And if you think about the medieval period, it was a handful of people who got some sort of tertiary education. So you could know individually what each student knew, and that could be communicated professor to professor or to the employer, which was usually the clergy or sometimes a few other professions. But as rates of participation in higher education increased, it was more efficient to have some sort of scale that could communicate accomplishment beyond that circle of people who knew each other. So we think that the first use of grades in college was at Mount Holyoke, and then in about the 1880s or so, and then it spread along with other changes in higher education and other levels of education to become more industrial and more efficient. 
So there's this notion of industrial efficiency, which accompanied the idea of factories. And as schools became more factory-like, there was grading of eggs and grading of beef and grading of students. And it seemed very scientific. The art of scientific management then became all the rage. But along with this increase in volume were other changes that included grades. And so the grades were ways of sorting, which they do, they still sort. But grades also, at least in our day, are supposed to have the effect of providing feedback. And so the sorting and the feedback functions of grades are often in tension or sometimes contradiction with one another. And so that's one of the things that most of us who practice on grading are very uncomfortable with. We would like to, at least on the feedback side, give actual useful feedback. And I think that's where some of the labor comes in, because if you're actually giving someone feedback on their work, you have to communicate with them, but they also are much more likely, as research shows, to hear it and incorporate it if it's just feedback and not necessarily evaluation. I'd love for you to tell me about the journey that you've been on as someone who excelled in school and replicated the structures that you had experienced as a student when you first became a professor, but you've now completely changed what you do in the classroom to decenter grades and prioritize meaningful and authentic learning. So how have you come to see your role as a professor in a new light as you've gained more experience in the classroom? I used to be very precise in my grading. I I liked math, so it was fun to kind of come up with little formulas for this format in their bibliography wasn't quite right. And so that was seven points and everything was very, very precise because I wanted my students to be excellent at academics the way which I thought was the goal. I thought the goal was kind of self-replication. That's kind of what I was there for. And I always could recognize the students who were like me, you know, the ones who loved reading and writing, and they were careful about citation, and they would read extra things. And, you know, the nerdy students. And I used to feel that if I could only get the incentives right, I could help all of them be like that. But my task and my role was to let them know where they fell short. It's really kind of embarrassing and sobering to look back at those years. Now I have become so much more nuanced and democratic in my view of what we're about. And I see that my goal is to help everybody move forward and they're all moving to different places and that that's a beautiful thing. We shouldn't all be nerds, because if we were all nerds, the world would be a mess. If everybody were content to sit and read and write, then nobody would go out and build our bridges or something. So we need people who will build bridges, and we need people who will be ambassadors, and we need people who are athletes, and we need people who are doing all the different roles that a society requires. So given that knowledge of how different all our students are, and I'm not talking only about like race and class and gender 
and linguistic background, but all the different ways people vary, how can we have a class together? How can we do justice and respect all of these differences and make them assets rather than liabilities? So designing courses, I mean, trying to design a course that is emergent in part in the moment of seeing who these people are and what they're responding to in what ways means there's a lot less control that the instructor has. I can no longer really write a syllabus. I, I write beginnings of syllabi and my syllabi are all living documents now. And they all have lots of spaces because there are so many ways even to get at the major goals. You know, what do these particular students in this particular class respond to? And how can we use that to get to some of the places where I think we might be going? So it's there's a lot less uniformity. There's a lot less control. I think of it sort of as improv now. That's much less comfortable, but it's much more alive. And so I'm a much happier teacher, even though I'm sort of nervous every day. <laughs> yeah, it makes it so alive, you know, and if you teach the same thing the same way year after year, it becomes a little bit dead and stuck. And so responding as you are to the needs of the particular students you have in the room this year and what's going on in the world and making it so relevant. It just seems like a way to keep yourself fully engaged and alive and the students as well. But it's hard. And for those who are listening, I acknowledge all my privileges that let me do that kind of work because it takes a lot of work. We've all developed these limiting beliefs as a result of our schooling all or nothing propositions. Either it's got to be perfect or it's not worth doing. And you talk about the value of learning imperfectly and how that is a very human pursuit. Tell us more about what learning imperfectly means to you. I try to model imperfection these days. I really, I tell my students that when I was first teaching, I thought I had to be the expert at everything. And I recommend to your listeners Teresa Houston's book, Teaching What You Don't Know, which is scandalous also, right? As how can you teach something if you don't know it? But what you can teach is how to learn things that are interesting and worthwhile. If we can teach our students how to do that, how to evaluate sources, how to decide when have you learned enough to understand this topic, then that is something they can take with them when they leave our classes, because we can never teach everything. The idea that knowledge is finite and they're going to get a complete set of things in our classes is impossible. It's wrong. It's completely wrong. The other thing is from design thinking and looking at how children learn, we know that mistakes are information. And if you are afraid to make a mistake because you know you will be graded down for it, then you're cutting yourself off from all of the potential learning experiences that you would otherwise have. So in my classes, I give a lot of freedom in the formats with which students present their learning. And many of them, because they're not graded, and because the class develops this atmosphere of trust, the students try all kinds of crazy things. 
and they know they're not good at them and that's okay. But it's the first time in school that, I, I mean, maybe not the very first time, but for some, it is the first time that they have been encouraged to try something without knowing if they're good at it or not. And they would not try that if they were graded on it. So they would only use the safest tried and true method. I have students who are good at essays, so they will write essays often for the first assignment because they know they can do that and they're good at it. But then their classmate across the room did a video and the video, maybe the sound wasn't great, but wow, we all loved it. And then their other classmate did a podcast and their other classmate did an infographic and they realized, oh, it doesn't really have to be perfect for it to be good, for it to be worthwhile. And so I really want my students and then the faculty that I interact with to know that perfection can't be the measure of everything. There's been a lot of discussion in this last year or so about this idea of rigor and whether people in STEM can be just sort of so-so in their knowledge of the human body or their knowledge of concrete on the bridges or something. And clearly, we're not saying that, but we're saying engineering is more than just knowing the formula for the strength of concrete. I did ethnographic research on an engineering internship for three summers, and I watched engineers learn things, and they made mistake after mistake after mistake, not building the bridge, but trying to arrange the permits to get a pipe in a particular place and having to design around it and not being able to use just the formula for the concrete, but also knowledge of society and knowledge of humans. If the students are taught that there's a right and a wrong answer for everything, we are doing them such a disservice. And I'm supported in this by the city engineer who ran this internship, who said he really wanted his interns to know that there was not just one right answer, even though it's easy to create problems that do have right answers. But that's not where you stop. And it probably shouldn't be where you start. You should really start with what are we trying to figure out? And then how do we do it? And then why do we do it? And why does it matter if we get the formula right? I love that you've zoomed out from the traditional practices of classroom that you might have grown up in to ask the question of like, oh, how do people really learn things? And it is through the iterative process of making mistakes. And so you can actually create that in your classroom, a safe space for students to make mistakes and think more expansively. And it's incredible the way that the demands of learning have changed so much in the time that you've been a professor. I mean, it used to be that the stack of books behind you on the wall was like the repository of knowledge. And now we carry our own supercomputers in our pockets. So what do we teach students? I mean, to be this discernment and this lifelong learning and this ability to see beyond the one right answer. So I love that you begin your courses by asking students to formulate their own learning goals and to make connections between what they'll learn in the course and their lives. So what have you learned from them in that process? Well, a lot of them have never thought about that before. <laughs> I think that's probably the main thing I've learned is that this is a shocking question for them. They're in the class because it fulfills a requirement, because it's part of their major, 
or maybe it sounded interesting and it was the right time of day. And those are all legitimate reasons in the realities that we live in. But the students can come up with other answers. One of the things that I'm always looking out for is, are they saying this to please me? Even though there's no grade on that assignment, students are quite aware of my power ultimately to grade them. And they have spent so much of their lives trying to please the teacher that I can't be sure all the time, but really want them to realize that this is their education. They're not doing it for me. They're not learning for me. They're ultimately, this is their opportunity. And college is very expensive. Even for wealthy people, it's expensive. And it takes a long time. And it should be worth something for them, more than just three credits on a transcript. But I think I've learned a lot. I mean, I my students, like all humans, are really interesting and varied, and they have all kinds of amazing lives. And if we can use that as material to think with, then we can learn more. You talk about a number of strategies that you use in the classroom, like student reflection, self-reflections, student choice, for example, offering them format freedom or unessays. And our students even giving each other constructive feedback. So can you tell us more about how you structure your courses and build up your assignments to tap into students' intrinsic motivation? It depends, of course, on the course. But in every class, I try to give them freedom, autonomy, choice, all those things, but, but in a reasoned way. Because when they leave school, they will have these kinds of choices. If you are going to persuade your city representative to put a swimming pool in your park, you can decide, am I going to do an Instagram campaign? Are we going to put posters up all around town? Are we going to write letters to the editor? Are we going to tweet? All of these things are real and we all have so many choices and it's helpful to have practice deciding on the choices. And each genre has conventions that are expected with that. So ideas of color and accessibility and how wordy they are. You know, Twitter has much less freedom than a Facebook post. And so you have to make decisions about what you're doing and why. Students are really, sometimes they're overwhelmed by freedom because they haven't really had it before, but they tend to really like it. And I also ask them to reflect on the content of what they're learning and then the format of the way they're presenting it. And most students take it pretty seriously. Some don't, it depends. Some don't like the reflection. They just want me to tell them how it is. And I won't do that, which maybe kind of my line in the sand is I will not do business as usual, even if it's familiar and comfortable. But the reflections that my students write about their work, about their goals, about their progress mid-semester and at the end of the semester are my favorite part of what they do, because that's where they reflect on what they're learning. I hear them say things like, I hardly knew what this field was, and now I can talk about this, and I see it everywhere I go, and this has changed the way I look at the world, and that to me is evidence of learning, and I don't know that I could get that easily in a multiple choice test, but I get it really easily when students are reflecting on what they know now that they didn't know back in 
August. I also like to have students give feedback to each other because that's a real world skill that you need to practice. And it's it's not just a Yelp review of five stars, but it's giving some kind of useful feedback. And then also having the students use the feedback because useful feedback you're not using isn't very useful. So it can be for the next version or something. I sometimes do fall short and run out of time and we don't always revise everything. I still, like so many faculty, I still overstuff my classes a little and don't always leave enough space for revision. But I try to build that in where I can. And you also include kind of an oral examination, but not an examination, more of a conversation with the students as part of the feedback you give them and as part of the structure of the course itself. Tell me more about that. For the last six years in all my classes, I have had mid-semester and semester final meetings, very brief five-minute meetings with every student. I used to also try to meet at the beginning of the semester in groups, like over coffee or something with each student to try to get to know them a little bit and try to make things a little bit more comfortable. COVID has kind of made me forget some of these practices and I'm not eating and drinking with as many people as I used to. But I love these meetings where, which are accompanied by a written reflection that's more extensive, that I walk students through a kind of revisiting of the goals of the course and some of their work and what they've learned. And I I change those all the time, but I really like sitting down with each student one-on-one very briefly just to connect. And these things are kind of awkward in the middle of the semester, and they're almost always really comfortable by the end of the semester. I hear about what they're doing for vacation and how their grandmother is doing now, and it gets a little bit personal and we can bring up some things that have happened in the semester, but not always. You know, some people are in a hurry. They want to go. Their plane is leaving. But I really like having this personal interaction. And I did it on Zoom. I taught remotely for a year and I did them on Zoom, which worked really well also. It sounds like part of your ungrading ethos is developing meaningful relationships with the students, but you ultimately have to give them a grade. So how do you arrive at one? I ask the students to suggest a grade and to give me evidence. And they're usually pretty thoughtful. Usually they have worked hard and learned a lot and have good work to show for it. So if they have done that and they can show me, then I'm happy with good grades. I sometimes have students who have had distractions or challenges I work as hard as I can to help them all be flexible and I don't have penalties for late work or anything because a lot of the learning happens through the experience of doing the assignments. It's expected that students do all the assignments. And if they don't, they probably haven't learned as much. I have students who overrate themselves and I have students who underrate themselves and I do reserve the right to change the grade that they suggest. Every semester, I probably change one grade up and one grade down or so. I've spent a lot of time learning about grades and grades are really not very meaningful, but if an A means most things were done well and students learned everything they wanted to and everything I thought 
they were going to. And if somebody doesn't do that, I may not think an A is justified. I think because you built those genuine relationships with the students from the get-go, they're probably more receptive to your feedback and to having that real conversation about what went well, what room for improvement there is. And also might be pleasantly surprised when you're like, hey, actually, I think you're selling yourself short. (laughs) Or maybe they overrate themselves and what they learn from your class is actually a a new way of seeing themselves in the world that's actually going to be really useful for them when they're in the workplace and et cetera. So it seems like it's actually a more meaningful form of feedback and an assessment when it's a conversation and when there's a dialogue rather than just this top-down thing of here's your grade. I mean, I don't think our only job is to help people become workers, but it does mimic a lot of performance reviews in the workplace as well. So Wentworth Institute of Technology, you can imagine there's a lot of STEM and engineering. So I was wondering if you could talk about ungrading in those contexts and also in large enrollment classes. I have a faculty member I work with who has over 300 students every fall semester and some big intro sections. And I always bring up these cool creative ideas and he's always like, I would love to do that, but I just can't with all these students. I'm not gonna be able to manage it. So it sounds like a lot of these wonderful interventions of meeting with every student and you know really building those relationships might be more difficult with these larger enrollment courses. And yet I know that there are folks who are using ungrading in different ways in those contexts. Can you tell us a little bit more about how they do that? There are people using ungrading techniques in STEM. Sometimes they use specifications grading so that it doesn't matter how you get to the final result as long as you're able to demonstrate a certain amount of skill in something necessary. So you're not penalized for being late to class or for not turning in your homework. As long as you get there, you do fine. So specs grading, I think, is one solution. I want to just put in a plug for active learning, even in large STEM classes, because it's possible. Carl Wyman and his science education initiative and lots of work in physics and chemistry and other subjects over the last many decades has shown that there are lots of things you can do even in large classes with clickers, with polls, with surveys, all kinds of things that help students get absorbed and engaged in the material. And I would say that some of that is partly ungrading, that if you're asking people to stake a claim on an answer in a math class and you're not grading it, they're being motivated because they want to learn it or because it's interesting or because they want to have a friendly rivalry with the person who sits down the row from them. So there are lots of little things that people can do that really are not graded that you could also grade, but that really contribute to learning. You can have people bring in an article that's related to the STEM subject And they can discuss it in small groups of three or something. Three is a good number because people can't slip through the cracks as easily. There are lots of activities that can be done that can work in larger classes. Some people in our book and then beyond our book have used ungrading techniques in large classes. Sometimes they use contract grading. So if you do the work, you get the credit for the activity. Jesse Stommel has said that he's heard of people having final portfolio reflections with conferences optional, so that if a student wants a conference, they can have one. 
but it won't be every student. So if you have a class of 100 or 300, maybe you'll have a dozen conferences, but you won't have 300. Carl Reisman talks about automating responses to his computer coding courses so that he's looking at the coding and he has these responses, but he doesn't have to manually respond to each one. So those are some of the techniques people have used. It sounds like ungrading practices are really all over the place and also mirror a lot of best practices that we talk about with other language, like as you brought up active learning and things that create more student engagement and low stakes or no stakes assignments, the you know, space to try and fail and try again, get feedback, um, collaboration, all of these good things. And sometimes I, I would think that when you go into a classroom and you're like, I'm going to do this crazy thing, the students are like, well, whoa, whoa, we're used to how things used to be. So how do you explain ungrading to your students in ways that gets buy-in from them? When I first started ungrading, I think they thought I was tricking them, that I won't tell you what your grade is, and then you'll find out at the end, and good luck. I, I think that's how they heard it. But uh, over the past six plus years that I've been ungrading, I've gotten better at reassuring students that it'll be okay. Editing the, the ungrading book was partly a way of helping me think through how to present the material to the students. But ungrading is not as novel as it was even two years ago. Our book seems to have struck a chord in many educators. So I no longer have every student in the course say, I've never heard of this before. Occasionally, they will have already experienced an ungraded class. There are people in my department, there are people in other departments who are explicitly practicing ungrading. So having a classmate who has lived through it, can it reassure them? But really what I do is I really begin by focusing on community and relationships and learning cool stuff. That's where the class begins. We spend a day, a week, sometimes two weeks, really emphasizing relationships and then learning cool things. And they do these cool things. And then I remind them, yes, you're doing this and you're not graded on it, but wow, look at We've had fun and we've learned, so let's keep doing that. If you actually have a conversation with students about grading, it can be really therapeutic. It can be very difficult, though, as they tell us all the real ways that grading affects their lives and all the fears they have about grading. Again, it, it's something I kind of feel it out in my classroom. I want every student to be there the day we really have a discussion. And I don't know about everybody else, but this past year, attendance was really challenging for my students. It wasn't only COVID, but for some reason, students were really not always there. But I put in the syllabus, we will be practicing ungrading. And sometimes I have FAQs, but I do not lead with ungrading. The first day is not syllabus day, and we start right away doing things. I think that's a fantastic strategy. Let's just get into it and get excited about anthropology and get excited about meeting each other. And then eventually we're like, oh, by the way, oh, okay, we're, we haven't gotten grades yet, but we're having fun learning. So let's just keep going with that. So I have three more questions for you. We just talked about how you introduce the concept to students. And it sounds like it's really little by little and kind of through giving them experiences and then stepping back and being like, this is what we're doing and here's why. 
Similarly, how would you introduce this concept to faculty who are more traditionally minded and don't feel the need to change what they're currently doing in the classroom? How might you inspire them to see how this approach could be helpful to both them and to their students? One way that many of us have introduced the idea of ungrading is to talk about some of the problems with grades, how little they actually mean, how inconsistent they are, how they exacerbate already existing inequalities. But the positive dimension, I think, is the relationships with students, the improved learning, and the need to be engaging so that students are motivated by positive reasons rather than fear. So I think some of the best responses I've had have been when I've shown student work and people say, oh, wow, they did that and they weren't graded? Amazing. Also, student testimonials about how they finally had a class where they could focus on learning instead of the grade. I don't know that that would really persuade somebody who's very content with their own pedagogy. And I I sometimes say this, too, when I give talks. If you are perfectly happy with everything about your class, keep going. You know, it's clearly working. But if there are things that aren't working, think about this. Going along with that, how would you advise a faculty member who's curious about this to get started with ungrading practices? What small steps can faculty take to decenter extrinsic motivators like grades and lift up intrinsic motivators like usefulness? This is why this could be useful to you and genuine interest and curiosity about the topic. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about ungrading over the last couple of years, and there's some disagreement about whether people should start small or just take the plunge and go all out. There was an interesting question that somebody posted somewhere who said some of their assignments were graded and some weren't, and the students wouldn't do anything that wasn't graded. And this faculty member was frustrated because they were trying to introduce some ungrading practices. And I responded and said, if they think that the point of the class is the points, then something that doesn't have any points seems pointless. So you can't really blame the students for that if everything else gets points. But I think the challenge is to find things that students will do because they're interesting, either because they have a responsibility to each other to do something together, and you can do it in class. I also think that probably one of the most important steps in ungrading is to introduce the idea of reflection so that students are not waiting passively to be told by their teacher if something is good or bad but that we help structure useful and honest analysis of what they're doing, not just good or bad, not just right or wrong, but other more nuanced ways of thinking about their work that they then get in the practice. That would be something that everybody can begin to introduce so that the students are partners in this process. I also recommend highly that anybody who's practicing ungrading finds a buddy and a champion. So somebody that they can be really frank with, this isn't working, I don't know what happened. And then a champion, somebody who's got more institutional security, who is willing to vouch for them a little bit. Also keep evidence of what your students are doing so that you can see, oh, wow, look at this amazing project they did. 
even though it wasn't graded. And that will give them confidence, I think. I love how in decentering grading as a form of assessment, you recenter genuine feedback and you think through the student perspective and student motivation. You are a really passionate and thoughtful educator. So can you tell me about what being a teacher means to you? So I barely call myself a teacher anymore. I call myself a coach. If our model of teaching is somebody professing information and directing it into the brain of the student, I hardly do that. I don't think that works. I don't think it's what I want my students to experience. And so being a teacher for me, it's gotten so much more complicated over my 30 plus years of teaching because it's so much easier to say, I know this stuff and I'm going to tell them. But we know from decades of research that that's not how it works. You can tell people things all day long, but you have to figure out ways for them to hear it, to connect with it, to absorb it, to remember it, to use it. And so all of my time basically is spent now trying to figure out not just what do I know, but what do my students need and want to know that's connected to my subject, whatever it is, And how can I help make that happen? I can't make it happen, but I can try to create conditions that make it possible and sometimes even likely for them to do that and to want to do it. I have a question I ask everybody, which is, tell me about the role that curiosity has played in your life. I'm very curious about all kinds of things, and that is one of my prime motivators. I have little science projects happening in my kitchen all the time, not only the mold and the sourdough starter, but also little plant leaves. Is this leaf going to propagate, and is this one going to get roots, or is it going to rot first? I have studied all kinds of things. I began in science and I moved to philosophy and then linguistics and then Chinese and then anthropology and now education. And I just follow my interests wherever they take me. And I've been so fortunate to be able to do that in my academic work, both in terms of having an undergraduate experience that was flexible enough that I didn't feel the need to get a job immediately. And so I was able to pursue my own curiosity and also in my role as a faculty member who, you know, I'm hired to be an anthropologist, but I can be any kind of anthropologist I want to be. And so that's been a real blessing for me, being able to pursue all of these different strands as things arise. That sounds wonderful to have all that freedom and be able to follow your curiosity throughout your life and really keep on learning and sharing that learning with your students and with everyone else who you interact with. As we wrap up, is there anything else that I should have asked you or anything that you'd love to share or recommend with our audience? Some people want to know if ungrading has gotten me in trouble or anything? (laughs) You know, have administrators been disapproving or anything? And I have to say, it has been a great positive change. It's given me a new lease on life in terms of my teaching. And it's made me a much happier teacher. And my relations with my students are so much better. So you didn't ask that, but I answered it anyway. I'm so glad you did. That was a wonderful conclusion. 
Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Josh, for having me and for creating this podcast series and also for your incredible homework and your great questions. Those were some of the best questions I've ever had. Wow. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And it's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Dr. Susan Bloom is a professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame and a celebrated author and expert in progressive pedagogy in higher education. And I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, a production of the instructional design team at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative here at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us. And as always, Stay curious. kind of a stickler for citation, even though I understand students don't really care that much. But I was a proofreader and I like citation. It's a fun thing for me. I still do my bibliographies by hand. Don't shame me. <laughs> <laughs>